Thanks for joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers to discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word keys for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with a code word keys. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Welcome. I'm Mary Beth Hines. Thanks for joining us on Keys for SLPs for this episode Keys to Improving Speech Clarity of People with Down Syndrome with LSBT Loud. Before we get started, here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of Keys for SLPs and receive compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com. Jennifer Gray is self-employed at Connected Speech and Gray's Peak Speech Services. She is a trainer for LSBT Loud. Jennifer Gray received compensation for this presentation from SpeechTherapyPD.com. Sarah Bookout is employed at Gray's Speak Speech Services. She received an honorarium from SpeechTherapyPD.com for this presentation. No relevant non-financial relationships exist. And now, here's a little bit about our guest today. Jennifer Gray is an SLP with over 20 years experience. She has spent the last 12 years specializing in communication and feeding for those with intellectual disabilities and motor speech disorders. Jennifer has been using the LSVT Loud program to help improve speech clarity of people with Down syndrome for the past 12 years. Sarah Bookout is an SLP who recently completed her CFY and earned her Certificate of Clinical Competence. She is passionate about working with teenagers and adults to improve speech clarity and build social skills to increase independence. Sarah received her certification in LSBT Loud and has used the program with clients to increase speech intelligibility, sentence length, and vocal competence. Welcome, Sarah and Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we are so excited to have you here today. Before we dive in, can you tell us how you became interested in using the LSBT Loud program with people with Down syndrome to improve speech clarity? Yes. So I've been specializing in speech clarity or treating those with speech and language and feeding difficulties with Down syndrome for most of my career. And in that process, have had a lot of luck with really making speech a priority and making speech easier for others to understand and helping people with Down syndrome understand that people don't always understand them. And so through everything that we know in the research, there was still something missing. And it was this voice component that every single person with Down syndrome I've ever met had, but there's just not much out there in terms of how do we treat that? Why is it that we can get intelligibility to a point 
or we can get articulation and phonology and motor planning to a certain point and then still not have speech clarity. And that bothered me for years. And so in the process of trying to figure out, okay, we have all the sounds, they're all there. And in one to three word sentences, they're pretty intelligible. But more than that, things start to happen and it falls apart again. And so in the process of looking at that with young children all the way up through adults, I started looking for voice and came across LSVT and started asking a bunch of questions of them before they had a pediatric program. And then when they came out with it, I immediately got trained in a way to kind of address that speech, resonance, prosody, fluency, and it worked for a lot of those things. So it's now a tool that we use with almost everyone that we treat with Down syndrome. And you are actually a trainer now for LSVT Loud for the pediatric program. Is that correct? Yes. So after I started using it, I kept emailing LSVT just to say, oh my gosh, you need to know that this is working. And I would share stories and, hey, this is what happened. And they were so happy to hear some of those that when they finish the kid course, they asked me to come in and help them teach that course. And so I really specialize in the teletherapies portion of the course because Sarah and I have doing most of our therapies through teletherapy and with an intensive program where you have to go one hour, four times a week for four weeks, that's tough on a family with children or somebody that's working because the original program was for people with Parkinson disease who tend to be older and retired. And so the intensive piece of it getting to those sessions didn't pose such a big problem as it does with the pediatric population. And when I was telling them the luck I was having through teletherapy, there was something that we really hadn't looked at yet. And so that's the piece that I do for them in the, for the LSVT Loud for Kids training program. I help with how do you do this via teletherapy for people with Down syndrome. Okay, great. And just to clarify, you do this program almost exclusively through teletherapy, not in person? Yes, but it can be hybrid or it can be either or. Okay. And Sarah, how about you? How did you become interested in this area? So I started working for Jennifer Gray right out of grad school two years ago. And just through her, I learned so much about Down syndrome and how different it can look and all of the populations that we are able to work with. And I fell in love with it and all of my clients and really across all of them is that voice piece and the speech piece that is so hard to target. Sometimes I find myself wanting to break it down to the sound level and it just, we really don't get anywhere. And I work mostly with teens and adults. And by that point, we need to kind of move farther a little more quickly for some of that voice stuff and speech clarity. We don't want to break it down to each speech sound as much because it's frustrating for them. And the point is for them to be able to communicate independently. So when I was offered the opportunity to take this LSBT program, I was excited to learn there was something that targeted speech clarity kind of as a whole and a really just like global approach to it. And I learned more about it and I had observed 
this program being used with adults with Parkinson's before during my internships in grad school and saw what a difference it could make. So it was really just a great opportunity to see what it would look like with children. And then it worked so well, I've just become more and more interested in continuing to use it. Excellent. Well, great. All right. And the good news is there has recently been some research released about this program specifically being used with the Down syndrome population. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. It was their first phase or phase one research project, and it looked at a group of people with Down syndrome children and how they were able to handle the intensive treatment over a month's time. And then what were the results of that? So the results ended up being that, yes, it did help. It helped with, we knew that now they can handle it, right? They can handle an intensive program. They can handle hour-long sessions. And they improve during that time, whether it be their willingness to verbally communicate or more words at a time or being easy to be understood when they needed it because the cognitive load of the program is so low. And so because it's such high repetition, it really is just sustained phonation of vowel sounds, single words, and then phrases in such high, high, high repetition that they have a chance to finally master those things. And so then because of that mastery and all that repetition, they're able to actually use it outside of the therapy sessions. And then the cueing piece, which also helps with this population because they have executive functioning difficulties, meaning that their short-term memory that you might need for something like sequencing or saying a lot of things at a time is very difficult for them. And so with LSVT, there's really only two cues. Use your loud voice or do it like I do. And because that was originally for Parkinson's patients who were kind of, you know, declining in their ability, that helped them. But it helps our population because they don't have to remember all the pieces of speaking like you would for a golf swing, right? You have to remember all those 50 things to do a very simple task. This just allows them a simple way to say, hey, do it just like this so that we're taking out anything negative or just copy me. And so that simplicity combined with the repetition really did help these people in the study have clearer speech and use what they learned. Excellent. And that was phase one. And what further research is being planned or conducted currently? I don't really know. I'm not a part of the research process, but really looking at the specifics and what can improve and all the kind of details that the phase one didn't give us. So even we found out, hey, there's really promising, significant change. Now we get to start describing what that is. Excellent, excellent. And you have, besides the research, you have used this program with quite a few people. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So we initially started using it with our very young ones. So two years old, up through a a few teenagers. And that was the other concern is even though I've been in early intervention for a long time and Sarah, that's where she did most of her internship, I admit I thought an hour for a toddler was ridiculous, (laughs) but it turned out not to be and it really kind of shaped how we work with them. 
And so when you know you see a toddler or a young child able to have better clarity from a program, and then when we started applying it to teens and adults, it was even more exciting because you know we're kind of all about the little ones. You know, we love the toddlers, we want to get them on the road to success right in the beginning. But our teens and adults oftentimes are really left to their own devices, especially after high school is over. Services and insurance for services really drop off. And so when we saw that it was successful with our teens and adults, that even lit a new fire like, hey, this is something, it's an intensive program, gets them started really quick, and then a maintenance program after that. And that's where Sarah has done most of her work because she really loves working with our teens and adults on their clarity, but also how they use their clarity so they can be independent and they can have social relationships. And so it was this perfect way for that population of older people to use this program and then use the speech that they would need in actual real life, whether it be a job or going to school or just being more independent in general. So I've worked with about 15-ish, I think. And Sarah, I think you've done, what, two and then some observations. Mm -hmm. So it's still in its infancy. It's only about four years old. I think it came out in 2000. Well, I started doing it in 2018. And then the kid course is about a year old. Okay. And Sarah, you've really, through your CFY and working at Grace Peak, you have really honed in on the fact that you would like to work with teens and adults versus the early intervention. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> the babies are cute and I love working with them too, but I have found that I learn the most and am able to provide the most support with the teens and young adults that I've been working with. A couple of them I have done the LSBT program with, and it has just been so cool hearing how that plays over into their lives in such a functional way. A lot of them have jobs, are in the process of getting jobs, and those independent communication skills are so important for that step in their life or even just graduating from high school and getting through high school classes. I've seen a lot of growth and heard a lot of great feedback from my clients and their families on how much it's helped increase their confidence and then them just communicating with peers. Well, it is so exciting when we can help someone really change their life and their independence by improving their communication skills. And it sounds like you're helping a lot of people do that. So that's great. All right. So let's talk about the different, there are some people who are listening who are probably pretty familiar with LSVT being used for Parkinson's patients and probably familiar with the whole program, but we probably have some people who have only just heard of LSVT. So can we go back a little bit and talk about how the program works? Yes. So the program really is just an intensive month-long program. And the way we usually do it, but it can be any combination of days, but like Monday through Thursday, one hour each day for four weeks to get us to those 16 sessions. And then a lot of practice on those other days where there aren't sessions and even practice after sessions. And so you have this, what they found was that they were getting really good results with just a kind of intensive, immediate service. 
and then kind of maintaining it after that. There were better results than just doing it in a normal type of sequence in therapy. So we have that piece there and then we can maintain it. And so in the hour sessions or during each hour, we start with just being able to sustain phonation, which is oddly difficult for this population because they have dysarthria. Simply turning on your voice is hard. Some of the research says it takes two times the effort to initiate voice for people with dysarthria and Down syndrome because they have low tone and dysarthria. Is simply going, ah, can be hard. And then being able to sustain that voice for a long time at differing loudness and pitch levels is also very difficult. So out of that same research that said it's two times as difficult also suggests that people with Down syndrome can't sing. And when I heard that initially, it was like, oh my gosh, that's the worst thing ever because here's a population who love music probably more than anything else on the planet, but yet their singing really isn't singing. It's just kind of you know, enjoying a beat and participating in a word here or there because of that coordination of speech difficulty. So the program starts with just being able to hold a sound like ah loudly for a long time. And then it goes from 25 repetitions, 15 to 25 repetitions of those sounds. And then we move to words and then we use phrases and then we do more game-like conversation tasks in that fourth week. So it kind of builds on itself. And we decide what those targets are in the beginning. We can change them here and there. But really, the words and the phrases that we choose, those are the ones that we practice <laughs> each session and at home. So they get just an astounding number of repetitions during those 16 sessions but also what they're getting at home. And then it really leaves us in a place where now we have the ability, we know what they can do, we know the cues to use, how do we maintain that later? So that's kind of the program is that really intense month. And then we do the maintenance after that. Okay. And those phrases, those practice phrases, can you tell us a little bit about how you go about choosing those phrases? Yes. So really, we want the client and the parents to choose that, those phrases. So anything that they will say a lot during the day or something that they say not well that they really should say better. And parents are really a part of that process because kids really probably aren't going to tell us that. So for me, what we've noticed, and this is all ages, is their name, Oftentimes, just simply saying your name is not understood by other people. And that's really going to set the listener up to think that the speaker may not be worth listening to because I didn't understand your name right when we met each other. And so I like to start with those name and then some safety things, phone number, address, parents' names, that type of stuff. And then into phrases phrases they need to use a lot. Excuse me, I need to go to the restroom. Where's the restroom? My name is blank or whatever those phrases are that are going to help them. So with our adults, we'll do some things that have to do. We have an adult that one of our therapists was working with who works in a coffee shop. And so they practice those phrases that you might need to use to help someone, you know, pay for the coffee that you're going to make them. So anything that means something to them or something they really need to work on for 
a very functional purpose. And then once we have those, we can modify them here and there, but those are usually the ones that we stick with the entire time. Okay. So they're really tailored toward the individual. Yes. And that is a huge part of that. So I highly suggest if you're doing this program to do that, whether you're using phrases, a parent, you know, helps you develop or a teacher or another therapist or a sibling, someone who knows the person really well that can help you get those down so that we know it's useful. That makes sense. Okay. So thinking of four sessions a week for four weeks, 16 sessions, we all know that life happens. So how do you deal with rescheduled sessions or missed sessions? Yes. So this is kind of where that telepractice comes in for us with this population. As we all know now, because of COVID, it's so much easier to reschedule someone during the day when you don't have to drive there. Either you're not driving to them or they're not driving to you. Most families have more than one child. So getting in the car and doing those makeup sessions is really tough. And so that piece of it allows us to, and that's part of the reason too, we do it four days a week instead of five. So we have that extra day to kind of build it up. It's flexible. I don't think LSVT would say, no, no, no. If it's not straight 16, you can't do it. So you have some wiggle room as long as it's within the time frame as close as possible to that one month. You don't want a lot of sessions to go by. If that's going to be the case, then they really do suggest that maybe another time would be better and you can restart it there. And so what we do is when we are talking to a family that we think would qualify, that's pretty much the first thing that we discuss is, do you have 16 days? Really, do you have a month where you're not going anywhere? Do you think we can do this then? And then if not, we we find a time that they do have that. So Sometimes we have to wait till Christmas break or summer break. But I do encourage therapists not to automatically put them in those times because we've also found that people go on impromptu vacations during those breaks. So really just see if, you know, at any time, when can you have those sessions? And then the other beautiful thing about teletherapy is that you can still have it if you're sick or if your mom is sick or if your brother is sick. And so that's kind of how we add in that flexibility, but it really will depend on the clinic you work for or what your scheduling is, but really need, we do need those sessions to be as close together as possible to adhere to the protocol. Okay. How about if someone says, I'm not sick, but I'm tired? What is your answer to that? (laughs) We say, I'm tired too, and let's figure this out as we go along. You know, and we're sitting, we're okay, we can make it a little more fun. Maybe we don't do every single awe and we do some other things that are like that, or we have a, we can play a game that incorporates those phrases or ways to make it more interesting and not just that drill, right? Even though it is a drill type program, there's a lot of effort that can be gone into making it personal. And Sarah, how about you? Do you have any? suggestions when someone says that they're tired? A lot of times I hear more parents tell me their concerns of their child being tired more than the child or client, adult, teen, saying they are. And it's usually around week three of the program. So what I remind parents is just from what I've seen, what Jennifer has seen, what we've talked about in our training, is there's kind of a slump 
in the third week where everybody is just worn out. Oz are not fun anymore and it's exhausting. And more than the kids say it, parents start to see it and they get a little concerned. And for some reason, by week four, they're back to their longest Oz. They're peppy. They're into it. They're excited. They're motivated. So I just try to remind them that by the end of the program, they come back up to where we want them to be, even though there is that little bit of a slump that seems exhausting. But when we get there, it's really worth it. And then by the end of the program, all the parents say, you know, you're right. <laughs> the last couple of days of that program, they weren't tired anymore. And, you know, they are using the strategies by themselves, too. So, yeah, just kind of reminding them that at the end, it does get better. And I don't know why the third week is the hardest, but it does get better the last week. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Thank you. Don't have to sit across from them either in a table style. Like if you've seen the original LSVT program, or if you do that with other patients, it really is pretty dry, right? You're at a table, you're recording everything. But with kids, we're playing, we're standing up, we're rolling balls, we're playing games, walking around, walking around, getting them motivated, anything that can kind of physically get them to be louder or quieter or have a different rhythm. And so it isn't quite as dry and drill as, as the original Parkinson program. And if you take the course, you'll see some of those videos of our therapists doing that in those 16 sessions. Well, thank you for pointing that out because I think many of the people who are LSVT certified have taken that older, the certification to work with adults. So that makes a lot of sense that you're still doing pediatric-based therapy, but you're just using the same methods. Exactly. And another thing you had mentioned when we were prepping for this, that it is actually good to do the program when you're tired because you still need to speak when you're tired. So, (laughs) And our kids, you know, they all have low tone and they often don't sleep well. And so pretty much just guaranteed they're going to be tired a lot. But that's kind of what that first research showed too, is like, hey, they can handle this, right? We tend to discount their abilities all the time, even though we know not to do that. (laughs) Good parents, you know, who they want the best for their kid, but we forget that they are capable of pushing past that like we are. And something I think that's kind of funny, I've noticed the deep breaths to do the Oz induce a lot of yawning. (laughs) So They're not necessarily showing up tired, but that deep breathing just really triggers yawning, which when you're looking at somebody yawning, then I yawn and then they keep yawning and parents see that and they're like, wow, I've never seen them yawn this much. Like they are just worn out. But part of it is also just kind of a change in the breathing patterns too. Well, thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, thank you. I forgot about that. That is very common. (laughs) Okay, so you've given us kind of a description of a typical session and then the sequence of the 16 sessions that you're eventually working up to conversation. And with kids, it's more through play-based games, etc. With the older ones, it's more of maybe a conversation about their day or, or whatever is a topic of interest. So tell us a little bit about generalization, which the LSVT program really terms calibration. Yes, that is kind of a confusing term, but that idea of calibration, can we do this enough times so that it's automatic enough to use it in real life? And 
the teletherapy piece again, what I kind of show in those sessions that I forgot to mention was there's a very visual piece that we use there because people with Down syndrome tend to have hearing loss throughout their lifespan. They don't learn well through auditory information, but they do very well with visual information. So that pairing of what I can see and what I know I need to do and what you're telling me to do, that combination through a computer screen is amazing because we can show icons moving. And so that's when you know you have to keep your voice going or our kids with Down syndrome and our adults are very good readers, most of them. And so reading phrases to kind of bypass that short-term memory problem, that executive functioning where they may only use two words at a time despite having all the vocabulary to have longer utterances, we can use reading as another way to practice saying things a lot. And so if you're practicing, all of a sudden you've only ever said spontaneously two words, through all of that practice of reading or having a visual cue for five words, then seems to generalize because now they know they can do it, even if it's not completely in the front of their mind, but they have the practice of modulating their airflow and their voice for longer utterances. And then we kind of see it start to emerge in that third and fourth week. And so just a fun example of that is one of the young ladies that you'll see in some of the videos, she's a teenager. And by week three, you know, she was really good. She loved all of it. She was her, you would see her motivation increasing and her pride in her own voice. And so as we were getting to that point where we needed to make sure that this is transferring out of the therapy sessions, her mom, well, actually first I had asked her, so, you know, what did you do in social studies today? This is a, something that we always talked about because it seemed to have the most interesting content from her day working on memory. And out of nowhere, she said, women's right to vote. And not only had I never really heard her say that many words, how she said it and the pride and the speed in which she answered my question, which just kind of blew me away. And it was, it was so exciting to see that. And so they kind of start showing you what they have generalized by the end of that fourth week. And then, you know, Sarah can share some of the things that she does with her adults too. But we've even gotten some feedback, unsolicited feedback from teachers, people at church, parents. Hey, they're talking more. They're raising their hand in class. They're just more willing to use their voice to communicate because they, from all that repetition, they know they can. And so that generalization really kind of works itself into whatever comes next. So Sarah, you can share some of your Yeah, I, I have a really fun client that I just finished the program with and he's in his late twenties and has a diagnosis of Down syndrome and autism. And he also has a pretty significant hearing loss supported with hearing aids. And he I would say mom told me when we first started, he was using one to two word utterances, but really didn't participate in conversation much. Just, you know, was happy to be there. Everyone would involve him in conversation when they could, but he wasn't really an active participant. And he also goes to a day program where they he works at a cafe, he does swimming activities. He's a busy guy, but he really wasn't communicating a lot, just kind of being led around to different activities. And 
I think it was even maybe two weeks into the program and he would read to me his report card from his day program kind of before we started the session as a way to warm up a little bit. And he started getting notes saying that he was extra chatty that day or he was talking a lot more than they were used to and that he had made a new friend. Just, you know, one of our phrases that we practiced was, can I sit with you? And then another one was, what is your name? And so I don't know how the friendship came about, but just using those functional phrases, he really started using them without me there, without mom there, just our repetition at home all the time kind of really showed up at his program. And then by the end of the session, his mom was saying that he was reciting some of the prayers that they practiced during very structured routine times of the day. He was reciting them at other times because he was confident in his voice and he was asking questions to family members that he hadn't seen in a while while on family vacations and using phrases. I think at one point he said, hey, it's time for cake (laughs) because it was someone's birthday and he was ready to eat cake. And just how excited they were about his progress, even in his late 20s, after years of speech therapy and And all the work they've put in, they just have seen so much growth over the last two months. And so our maintenance is really fun because we think of new phrases he can use at his day program or upcoming vacations. And that repetitive practice really, really helps him generalize it and helps him feel confident later. So that speech clarity piece really helps build social skills without actually specifically addressing social skills. Exactly. We never really practice, what do you say to a new person that you see? We just practiced being loud, saying, can I sit with you? And it worked. So it's been so fun working with him. He's one I really think that the program has done so much good for. Well, that is a great example. Thank you for sharing. All right. So we talked a little bit about vocabulary and using, you know, functional phrases during the program. And then Sarah, you have actually worked with some graduates of the program in some group teletherapy. Yes, I have worked with some of the graduates who have completed the LSBT program and some that have just been in speech therapy at Grace Speak for a really long time. And I do a virtual cooking class and I have volunteers, but they all want to volunteer every time. So I have to pick who's going to lead our cooking class. And I let them pick the recipe and we create a PowerPoint and we practice. In short phrases, we practice the steps, but we really practice being loud. And we talk about what it means to be a teacher. And when you're at school and you're thinking about a really good teacher, what does a really good teacher do? Do they talk really fast? Do they talk really slow? Do they talk really loud? Do they whisper? So just to kind of get them thinking on who they can model themselves after. But we always land on loud so everyone can hear us. And that's really pulling from the strategies from the LSVT program. And we go through the cooking class. Usually it's not, it's not seamless. There's always something that goes awry or someone doesn't want to make what we're making. And that's okay because really we're talking about communication and facilitating friendships, even though it's virtual. And we come up with 
questions beforehand that we practice repetitively with a loud voice and we read them multiple times so that I can kind of prepare them to ask their peers questions and feel confident in doing so. And I've noticed teenage boys, especially the ones that I've been working with, they're not as confident as they come across when it's just one-on-one. And that has been hard because, you know, one-on-one, I'm like, wow, you've got it down. No problem. Let's do it. And we jump into a group session and it just really all falls apart. And it shows me a lot of how can I help build their self-esteem? And a lot of it is speech clarity and loudness and having the tools to know what kind of conversation to have, what kind of questions to ask. So it's been fun to kind of adapt the generalization piece with people who have learned the strategies previously and kind of see how it goes in a group. And it's still a work in progress, but it's definitely a highlight of my week when we meet. Well, that's great. And you guys meet once a week then? It depends. Summer has kind of slowed down a little bit. It's usually every two weeks, sometimes every three weeks. Excellent. Okay. Well, that I love hearing about groups and successful therapy. So thank you for sharing. But we would be a little amiss if we didn't mention challenges specifically with this population as well. So can you talk about some of the challenges to communication with this population especially as they age. Yes. And so I think I, I don't know if we said it earlier, but the idea of loud, a lot of parents have come back and said, you know what, he's too loud as it is. I don't know if that's a really good idea. But by loud, what they call is healthy loudness. So loud enough that it changes your speech pattern, basically. So I kind of describe it as talking to someone just outside the door. Or, you know, in another room when you need to get their attention. And the reason that loud is extremely powerful is that you can't do a lot of the things that mess up speech when you're loud. So when you're loud, what happens? Your rate has to slow down. You have to pay more attention and give more emphasis to the sounds in that word. And you have to use something that you're focused on that isn't about, oh my gosh, what's going to happen next or what was in the past. It's really just kind of right now. And so what that does is it improves articulation, chronological errors. It helps with the motor planning because now it's slow enough that I can do those sequences. And it really helps with fluency. So a lot of our teens and adults and some of our kids have periods of stuttering and disfluency that can be very disruptive to their speech clarity. And it can come and go and it can be severe and mild. There's some who will never experience it. But as we've been really kind of pointing this out to therapists, as well as parents, once we kind of describe or point it out, it's like, oh, gosh, yeah, they are doing that. But, you know, we know from old stuttering research that if you sing, you can't stutter, right? That same idea. And if that isn't quite clear to who I'm explaining it to, I usually try to do a practice like try to yell really fast or try to yell and have some disfluencies. It's just really hard. And so that skill of loud really does multiple things that help multiple different concomitant disorders that might be on our plate. So Sarah had mentioned autism. People with Down syndrome have a higher percentage of people with autism as well, or autism-like characteristics. We have fluency, 
We have apraxia of speech. We have maybe a slew of different hearing and vision issues and medical issues. And we tend not to think of those. We kind of put them away from speech, but they really do impact speech. So if you aren't hearing very well one day, you know, parents know this, that we have ear infections without knowing we have ear infections. And so all of these things that can kind of creep in and hinder speech through using loud, we're able to actually, like Sarah was saying, target many different things for many of the things that people with Down syndrome experience that interfere with conversation, with running speech or connected speech. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for pointing that out, because when we hear the name of the program, it seems like it's just loud. But really, loud is one cue that because of the nature of being louder, you end up incorporating a lot of other parameters, such as prosody, articulation, rate. Yeah. And then we also combine it with melodic intonation therapy, which again is mostly, you know, comes from the stuttering world. And so really what melodic intonation is sustained phonation. So those long ahs prep us for saying a lot of words at once without taking a breath, without chopping them up like a robot, right? It was a technique that when childhood apraxia of speech kind of was a thing, we were taught, hey, if we chunk it up, it's more successful, and then we smush it back together at the end. That works, or it can work, but a lot of times we have to spend a lot of effort putting it back together. And so what we have found is loud plus melodic intonation. So just a little bit like this, not actually singing. I'm just not going to stop my voice. And so if I add those two together, it's almost impossible to do the things in speech that make me hard to understand. And so, again, we get to tell them what to do, and we don't have to deal with, nope, you didn't do that right, do it again. Oh, you forgot, you're not supposed to do this, this, and this, do it again. That's all removed. And so all they have to focus on is the feedback or the very simple idea of being loud. Or sometimes through the process, we find a better word like strong, or princess, or Maui, or whatever really kind of works for their system to remember, oh yeah, do it like that. And so we're able to target a lot of things within a very simple cueing system. So you're basically using one cue or the visual and auditory example to address a lot of different issues. Mm -hmm. And I even had one parent say to me, oh yeah, I do that all the time. I just say, in your loud voice, tell me what you want for dinner. And it immediately helped her daughter say it better. So it told her how to say it and what to say without actually having her need to repeat her mother. And so I thought that was great. And I use that all the time now. Excellent. Okay. So some of the other challenges that you have mentioned in the past, I know you've been a guest on Keys for SLPs in the past. So specifically regression. And this is not something that everybody knows about in this population. And there's also early onset Alzheimer's. So can you talk a little bit about that and how this program might relate to that? Yes. So when I teach, I usually start with this, especially for our teens and adults. In 19, I think 83, I'm not sure why that year, but life expectancy was very low. Um, I think we went from nine years of age to 23 years of age. And now, because of medical advancements of fixing 
cardiac issues, so the heart, pulmonary issues, we have made this population healthier and they're living a lot longer. When I learned that and we were really looking at those numbers, it was amazing and exciting. But at the same time, it hit us like, oh, gosh, this is a large group of people that will outlive their parents for the first time really in history that we know about. And the reason that's important is because we just tend to think that they're at home with their parents and it's, you know, we don't really need to prepare them for college or a job or being independent on their own. We do now. And so that's, that was my big push to really think, oh my gosh, speech clarity is probably the most important thing we need to be working on with this population, but we're not talking about it very much. And then in the process of research, we've also come across issues of regression. I think there's several different names it's being called in the literature, but regressive syndrome or Down syndrome, regression syndrome. I think there's a bunch of different ones. But anyway, and I've seen this personally three times. It's kind of scary. Um, What we're seeing is our older teens are losing skill, really for no dramatic reason that we knew. We have some ideas about what might trigger that, but basically we're watching some teens and young adults lose speech skills, lose independent skills like self-care or hygiene or being able to even eating for one person that I saw. And we didn't really know what it was. And it's scary to go from all of a sudden in a very short amount of time, losing your good speech skills out of nowhere. Well, turns out it's not really out of nowhere. While we still don't know why it's happening, and we do believe it's different from Alzheimer's onset, um, which is even stranger, but we know now that it can be fixed and it can be reversed. And so that was a huge relief when we thought really, oh my gosh, because in its worst phase at the end, they're saying it basically catatonia. So we can go from very high functioning to catatonic in a short amount of time, as in like less than a year. And what some of the research has shown, and don't take my advice because I'm not a medical doctor, but what my clients that I've watched go through this is a combination of some depression medications, early SSRIs, in combination with being more active, speech and language therapies, and being more physically active can reverse this regressive syndrome. So that being the case, LSVT Loud is also another really neat program to use at that time because it's so minimally easy to understand. The directions are simple, so it's not complex. And then, of course, the other piece that we're worried about and a lot of research is going into right now is that of Alzheimer's disease. So I think the numbers right now is that everyone with Down syndrome, or not everyone, a very, very, very high percentage, maybe in the 80s or 90s, will develop some form of dementia or Alzheimer's by the age of 40. So... It's very, very common, very scary. And we often don't like to talk about that with parents, but I do now almost immediately because we need to know what it looks like when that happens. And so we know from regular, not regular, but treatment for Alzheimer's and other populations, what is that treatment? Well, it's being active, it's being engaged, it's being physically active and mentally active and keeping that speech process. And so we are hoping, I don't think we have any numbers yet, but I think we're hoping that we can prolong that until there's a wonderful cure. But 
these type of speech being very, very verbal, in my opinion, is something that can help them as we approach those older years for many reasons. Excellent. Well, that, yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, I know we've had a chance to talk about a few different case studies throughout, but can we focus the next few minutes on one or two case studies that where you have been successful? I know you mentioned one person who had some hearing issues, not necessarily hearing loss. Yes. And this is a teenager that I'm currently working with, and I've been with him, I think, three years, I think, maybe four. Anyway, he had had a long history of therapies. He's in a Catholic school inclusion, really good at math and science. He's got all these wonderful skills going for him. But his speech was honestly some of the strangest speech patterns I've ever seen in my life, ever heard. Just very, very, very disfluent, a lot of extra emotions going on, and a lot of like undertone mumbling or kind of self-talk, which is common with this population, but it wasn't self-talk that I was seeing. It was just kind of almost encouraging or demanding self-talk about something that this person called B. And mom just kind of thought, oh, that's cute. You know, he's kind of named. We know that some adults have and teens have imaginary friends or they're rehearsing a lot of things in their head all the time. But really what ended up happening is B was actually tinnitus in this young man that may have been going on since he was very young, but we didn't know it. And so what he had learned was to call it B because that's what it sounded like. It sounds like a B to him. And talking to the B or personalizing it for him was able to let us know, even though it took us a long time, that, hey, you know, be quiet right now. I need to talk. And so that was a really interesting case where, you know, we kind of all did our own research and we're still working on this. But we found that some of the components of LSVT are kind of helping drown B out and helping us realize why or what might be going on when his speech looks like that, because he couldn't tell us. And so he just had a a very difficult time telling us what was going on with him and why his speech was good and bad and good and bad and good and bad. But we can now talk about it with him and give him some time that he needs. And then through some sustained phonation and a lot of repetition, that's kind of helped him deal with this tinnitus piece while, you know, his other team members are working on some other ways to reduce this. And so sometimes in your process of working with this population, we find things maybe for the first time, or maybe we notice things that parents don't notice, right? When you, with your own child, you don't tend to notice all those subtle differences. And oftentimes we're the ones that come in and mention something and kind of either remind or we refer out. And so this was one of those for me. Oh my gosh, this poor guy, we would have treated him for severe disfluency for years with no luck. And I'm pretty sure that's what's been going on his whole life and why his speech hasn't improved. And so within, you know, the different tools we have and helping parents and people with Down syndrome navigate the world, we also have to remember that there might be a lot of other physical things going on that we don't know about mostly because their language isn't good enough to tell us yet. So that was one of my most (laughs) kind of eye-opening 
experience is a lot like something that you would see with undiagnosed sleep apnea, which can cause some really strange behaviors too. And so this is definitely a population that has a lot going on. And it's just one more reason to make speech practice a priority and make it simple. Mm -hmm. Another thing that you had mentioned, a physical challenge that had gone undiagnosed in this population that you have seen in your practice is a submucosal cleft. Yes, that was us. We had like three in a very short amount of time, um, younger children, but not toddlers anymore, where we may have had a really hard time getting plosives or certain clusters and sounds and just kind of banging our head against the wall why this was happening. And then through an oral neck exam, maybe in different light, or one of our therapists noticed it from like across the room when the child was yelling or laughing or something and we were able to see in his mouth. And so obviously it was huge because again, we would have, we missed it. And we were really not understanding why this person was not progressing. And I feel the longer I work with this population, that there are reasons why speech stays poor, even though they've been in therapy for so long. So we can say, well, it was the wrong therapies, right? And that's what I spent a lot of my time telling therapists. Maybe we aren't going to work on those specific sounds anymore. It doesn't really work. But what if they can't? What if not having enough words like MLU I mean, you may not be a language disorder. It might be partially a language disorder, but really it's an ability to sequence and keep breath going controlled enough to say more words at a time. And so our kids tend to push words out. That's why they can't sing. They push words out, push words out, push words out. Well, you can only say one to three words at a time if you're doing that. And so just knowing that pattern can be disrupted and then trying some visual strategies like reading, having us sustain formation and simple cues like loud can help these things that we really weren't sure about. So one, maybe it's the therapy that isn't working and two, we really need to examine all the other things going on that we know either biologically or medically can be an issue for these kids. So not just hearing loss, but sleep apnea. GI issues, some clefts, other hearing issues, other vision issues. These all relate and lay on top of what they're showing us when they communicate. You have learned so much in this area in your years of working. How did you come to specialize in this area? It's funny because most people that do specialize in this area as well as stuttering, which was kind of my first love, know someone who stutters or knows someone with Down syndrome. I didn't. I just worked for someone who was doing a lot of oral motor at the time before it was bad <laughs> and feeding, right? So kids that didn't do that well. So those were kids that had autism, cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, babies through older teens. And so I just learned to work with that in terms of, you know, eating better and speaking better. But then when I moved away from that position and started doing this on my own, I was still working on speech because that was my background. I didn't have the big language push that a lot of like Sarah's generation coming up where they just a lot of languages and not as much speech. I think that's finally changing again, but I just would do what parents asked. So he's not speaking enough or well enough so that people understand him. So that's what I did. But what I didn't know at the time is that no one else was doing that. 
they were still just focusing on language, which is basically understanding and using, but not the mechanics of it. So now, not only do we know back then that receptive language is higher than expressive, we've always known that, we didn't go much further. We just kind of threw our hands in the air and said, this is Down syndrome. They just are hard to understand. That's completely untrue. And we can all think of someone who that's not true for. And that key component there is that practice piece. And so I really kind of dove in and worked on that clarity piece. And then I had to do a lot of self-education. So I was looking at whatever was out there, mostly from the DSE, which is the Down Syndrome Education in the UK, Dr. Sue Buckley, Dr. Liddy Kuman here in the States, and just really dove into those things. And then I really looked at what they were good at. And so I did a lot of reading because we knew we could get through that MLU, that speech, that fluency stuff. And then this voice and resonance and prosody stuff really laid on top of that. It was just this kind of perfect storm for me to sit down and really help these kids. And I think it's just a part of my personality to say, there's got to be a way. <laughs> this just doesn't make sense. They have the ability, why isn't it working? And so I just plugged away, plugged away, plugged away. And I'm still plugging away at how can we make this work? And really what I've come upon, but it's that idea of practice and preparation. Can we prepare them for what they need to be able to say? We need to prepare them for relationships, prepare them for jobs. And we've done that language-wise or you know, getting them those opportunities. But now that they have the opportunities, can they keep them? And that usually ends up landing on this communication side. Can they talk to someone and be understood? Can they help another person through speech? Can they form relationships using speech? And so that's kind of my story from there. And then I hope to start teaching more SLPs to look at it this way, just kind of reframe it. You know, language, we have to work on all of it, but I really believe that this verbal communication needs to be at the top of the list for all the reasons that we've just discussed. And then watching how Sarah has used it with her clients is just super exciting for me because she's been able to generalize it into areas that I just haven't yet. And so maybe Sarah, you can talk about why you ended up staying with me and staying with this population. I have really enjoyed seeing the kind of functional use and independence that teletherapy promotes for teens and adults, especially with Down syndrome. I've also really enjoyed seeing and learning how different each person with Down syndrome is. And I know that, but it is just so different seeing that across all my different clients and their personalities and their strengths. Like each one of them has a different thing that they are good at. And like I can make a general statement about what somebody with Down syndrome is going to be good at or need extra support in. And they've taught me that and they've taught me different ways to help them too. A lot of them that I do work with are very visual, but some of them aren't. Some of them prefer just to see me on Zoom and see my mouth versus a PowerPoint and a green screen and all the different activities I could do all day. And so what I thought coming out of grad school, I had this whole list of great ideas and ways I was going to do therapy and it was going to be great and perfect and easy and I was going to have a plan every single time. And that's 
not how it goes. <laughs> so working with Jennifer has been great because I can modify my therapy sessions to fit the individual and I can make it really individualized. Like today, I had a plan on what I was going to do with one of my teenagers who always keeps me on my toes. But what I found was he was having a really hard time using idioms and metaphors appropriately. He has a whole stash of them in his head because he's so obsessed with movies and he memorizes these phrases. But he was saying he was under the weather and he thought that meant he was sad. And so we talked for a long time about what that meant. And while we're talking about it, he's also saying words that I couldn't understand what he was saying or his phrases. I couldn't hear what they were meant to be. And so not only were we working on some language, but we really also had to bring it back to some of that speech clarity and some of our strategies we use. And this age group is so fun because I can ask them, why do you think I didn't understand you? Or how do you think someone is going to react if you use this phrase in the wrong way? How are they going to feel? And I just asking those kinds of questions are so fun because it gets them thinking about other people and perspective taking and empathy in all different kinds of ways. So they really, I, I just have so much fun. I couldn't do a different job because I have so much fun, especially with this age group. Well, that is great to hear. And that you also have mentioned that you have recently done some work with boundaries and how teaching boundaries in this population, especially at this age, but probably throughout, is so important to their independence. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. So I have learned that boundaries look like all different kinds of things. Boundaries can be, you know, their boundaries on what they are able to give that day, where they are at, but also boundaries for me professionally. I can't just be a friend. I have to be a professional also. And also just, you know, social norm boundaries. We, I work with multiple teenage boys and they all have a different idea of what they should be doing, how they should be acting in combination with how they're feeling and how they are developmentally really. And so we have to talk a lot about social media for one thing and even communication with me electronically. So part of what I like to do is have them be really independent in signing on to our sessions through email with a link to Zoom, totally independent, setting reminders in their phone, them contacting me if they can't make a session. I really rely on them to be independent and do it themselves rather than relying on parents. But then sometimes I get maybe emails or text messages that are not appropriate to send your speech therapist and nothing crazy. But you know, I don't need a hi, how's your weekend going at 2am on a Saturday from a client. <laughs> and So we have to talk about that too. And we talk about who am I to them? Who are your list of friends at your age of 19? Should your mom be your best friend? What does that look like? And I work really hard to be sensitive to the situation and the family dynamic, but also I want to help them understand different relationships and how to 
navigate those relationships and why friendships and peers of their age are important and setting boundaries so that we don't cross any lines that we shouldn't. And it's hard. It's really challenging. And it takes a lot of work with the parents too, no matter what age the client is. And it's it's a work in progress. So any advice <laughs> would be great. <laughs> well, I know, Jennifer, you have mentioned how important those boundaries are in order to become an independent adult, knowing what those boundaries are. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, it's tough. And I find that not only do we have to work on it with the client, but we have, like Sarah said, we have to work with the parents because I think over time, you kind of, you know, just grow accustomed to your child. And then you're supposed to start letting them go. But how do you let them go, but not completely let them go? And even with our younger ones, in terms of, okay, what should they be doing? And so what I used to say to families all the time, I guess I still do, but really when I'm working with a two-year-old, I'm talking about kindergarten. What do we need to do to prepare this person for kindergarten? Because sometimes we forget to do that. We're working on all these other things like potty training and teething and eating and walking and all the stuff that's hard early on. And then we get there and we go, oh no, now we have this gorgeous four-year-old who has all these skills and then suddenly doesn't when they go into a full day of kindergarten because we didn't prepare them for that. And so some of the courses I teach on speech therapy PD, there's three courses. One is preparation. And then how are we going to prepare them? But you know, what can we change or avoid? What do we need to prepare for? And how do we practice that so that they can be independent later? And so boundaries really kind of goes through that whole span of, okay, we need to get you ready for kindergarten. We need to teach you how to line up at the door when you clean up your toys. You have to listen to this active listening idea. All of the things we forget. You know, you can't flee all of these things that it's going to hurt them in school that we forgot to work on. And then as they get older, we go to junior high and high school. And then where Sarah's really working is this huge space between graduating high school and the rest of life, right? We've completely forgot that that's a thing that we need to work on. And it is, that's where regression happens. That's where all of this other stuff will fall apart. We have all this gorgeous help up until then with inclusion and early intervention and therapies. And then all of a sudden it stops. What do we do then? And that's where the really big important stuff that Sarah was talking about has to happen. And if it doesn't, we're really looking at, you know, kind of the down syndrome of the previous 100 years. But now that we know what they're capable of, we have the research and we have the advocacy Something that we're trying to talk more and more about is we need to prepare them for the advocacy work that's been done. So we prepared, we've told people to give them a chance to employ them to be their friends. But if we don't prepare them for those things, they're going to go in completely and they're going to fail. And that's what our kids are used to. And that's another reason LSVT Loud is so much repetition is they stop failing they immediately know what to do. They do it, they're successful, and they can move on. But if we don't do that, we really do kind of see the down syndrome idea of old. And that success is very motivating. Yes, they love being successful. They, you know, every child likes to watch movies over and over again, but this population takes that to a whole new extreme. They love mastering things. 
And so let's use that. Let's use that when they're little. We need to master setting the table or taking out the trash or doing the laundry. And then we just keep building it so that they can get a job and be successful at it. And they know how to talk to friends, right? That's the most heartbreaking part that Sarah talks about and that we see in our older ones is, why don't they have friends? Oops, we forgot to do that. We forgot to teach it. We forgot to work on the skills that lead to friendship. And so even though, I mean, Down syndrome is a huge bucket, right? I mean, there's just so many things to work on, but if we bring it always back to verbal communication, we really can't go wrong because we're constantly having to prepare and reevaluate as we're working on that. Language will always be there as the undercurrent, right? We can't not have that. So yeah, (laughs) there's a lot of boundaries and a lot of knowing what to work on when, but the exciting piece is that we don't really know. And that suits my personality. It makes a lot of other people nervous, but it gives me and Sarah the freedom to try it. So a lot of times the therapist will ask me, well, should I do this? Maybe I could do this. And kind of with a chuckle, but very seriously, I say, yeah, try it. You can't go wrong, really, as long as we know what is true and what we do know now, try it because everyone is different and it might work. Well, thank you for that encouragement, which that sounded like encouragement to all therapists out there who are working with people with Down syndrome. And I know you have mentioned that you are trying to encourage more people to specialize in this area. Can you talk a little bit about that and why that is needed so much right now? I'm old enough to know what it was like before autism, right? I mean, not really, but you know what I mean. Before autism was so on the radar and we had and we knew what was going on. So in the last 20 years, we've had tremendous success with this group. Down syndrome is the number one genetic disorder in the world and probably always has been, or at least for most of the time that humans have been around. And we haven't done much. We really need to change that because we're applying therapies that don't work for them. They learn in a very different way. They have different physical things that's going to affect their speech and language. And yet we haven't adapted our therapies. We're really just doing the same thing that we're doing with everyone else in the schools, right? Or what everyone else is doing in therapies outside of schools. What we need to do is learn how they learn. And this stuff is coming out as we speak, knowing what researchers are doing, knowing what activities or how anything can be adapted. So we're starting to do more podcasts, do more classes, writing more. We're on Instagram a lot more now, social media, trying to educate people about this specific population. While they're all different, there are very specific ways that we know we can help them with these things. And so I'm trying to not only give that information to therapists, but really encourage them to go out there and read stuff and then be inventive. What might work? An example of that is when Sarah started with me, she was in the schools for a while before, and she had mentioned a program that I'd never heard of called Color My Conversation. And I think it's even somewhat tied to executive functioning, but she had told me what it was and said that she wanted to try it. And I was like, yeah, just like I say, yes, try it. In my mind, though, I was not being as kind because I really was like, good luck, I think it's going to work. But she tried it. Lo and behold, it worked. Or she was able to modify the program so that it worked with her teens and adults. And now we can all use it because she had just enough (laughs) 
of a curiosity to figure it out. And so I think with evidence-based practice, as wonderful and necessary as that is, it's kind of stolen our creativity and it's stolen our curiosity. So if we're seeing an issue, attack it, read about it, find out about it, try something like color my conversation or five minute Arctic, some of these things in fluency, aphasia, we can bring all of that in and we have suddenly new tools for all these different aspects of what Down syndrome is. So I really hope, especially in the schools, as hard as hard of a position all SLPs in schools have, that we can look at this population sort of like we look at autism. Okay, so here's this diagnosis. This tells me this. And then what are they good at? And then let me use what they're good at to help what they're not good at. And you really can't go wrong with that system. Well, thank you for sharing. I know we are over time and we could probably talk all day, but (laughs) we'll have to have you both come back sometime. I really appreciate you sharing this information about LSVT Loud to be used with people with therapy with Down syndrome, as well as everything else that you have shared today. So we really appreciate you being with us and thank you very much. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we go? I'm going to plug Sarah really quick. She was here in Colorado with me and now she's in Texas and she is seeing clients and I'm sure would welcome questions from therapists. I think our contact information will be included with the podcast. So, Yes, yes. And you guys also will have a little handout for people who are listening through speechtherapypd.com as well. Yes. And we'll put our contact info there. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you everyone and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.